2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, therefore since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart, rather we've renounced secret and shameful ways, we do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God, on the contrary by setting forth the truth plainly we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It's written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but what is, on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will be, not be found naked. For while we are in the, this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it's God who made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him 
for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Well, today it's what is evangelism to start with. And the root of the word illustrates its meaning. For right in the middle of evangelism, you'll see the word angel. It's a carryover from the Greek to the English. It's actually a transliteration, not a translation, the word evangelism. And angel is, lies at the heart of what the whole thing is about. It's a messenger. And so the evangel is the message, the gospel. Evangelism is preaching the gospel. Evangelical is a believer in the gospel. And an evangelist is a preacher of the gospel. And interestingly, the Greek word for promise is epangelia, which is the promise of the gospel. So evangelism is evangelizing. It's spreading the evangel, the gospel. I particularly would like any journalist amongst us to learn to differentiate between evangelism and evangelical. I can understand why they're confused by these two things, fundamentally because as a journalist it's important to write before you know. <laughs> and so I can understand their confusion. But it's also because all evangelicals are into evangelism and so the people who are into evangelism are evangelicals. It's understandable. An evangelical is someone who believes the gospel Evangelist is someone who preaches the gospel. Evangelism is about preaching the gospel. That is fundamentally proclaiming. For there's a series of words that go with evangelism and evangelical in the Greek. Preaching, proclaiming, declaring. But they're all words about giving a message. Declaring words. Declaring a message. But because the message is divine, it's powerful. See, God said, let there be, and there was. God didn't actually go out and do it. He just spoke it. That's because he's powerful. I presume the buildings that have taken place around here and the expressway, the, the whatever you call them, motorways, expressways, roads, that uh, I see all around about here, are uh, created in one sense by the sheik. He's been out with the... Uh, the cement mixer and the shovel, and he has built them himself. Is not how it's done, is it? He speaks, and all kinds of people organise, go out, create, construct, and do what has happened. The more powerful you are, the more you speak and the less you physically do. God is the ultimate powerful one. He said, let there be light, and there was light. It's an illustration of his enormous power that he but speaks. Now that powerful word of God is the message we're preaching. And because it is powerful, a verse I mentioned a couple of times yesterday, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 reads, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. That it's not a passive word, it's an active word of God. Some years ago, I had some uh, uh, difficult dealings 
with, with a very lovely Christian man that I'm going to spend eternity with called John Wimber. And uh, John Wimber was uh, a Californian who had been converted uh, in the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s in California. And uh, in his conversion, he was very frustrated because he didn't see miracles. And he thought, having read the New Testament, he was going to see miracles all the time, and he didn't see the miracles. And he, he described to me how he had the menu, namely the Bible, but he didn't have the meal, namely the miracles. And he didn't understand the Bible is not like a menu. See, a menu is not a meal. A menu has no power. A menu is just the dead letters of humans on a page. That, that's, that's not what it is. The Bible is the living, active word of God. It's not like human words. My words are not very powerful. Some of you might be powerful people. Your words may be powerful. My words are not powerful. God's words are infinitely powerful. If you have God's words, you have the miraculous power already. But he wanted to see miracles rather than hear the miraculous. Very different thing. And to align it to a menu and a restaurant misunderstands the living and active dynamic word of God that we have in the scriptures. So the second of the talks in this series, the first from 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 and 5, spoke of the letters of Christ, the transformed people of Christ, transformed from one degree of glory to the next as we continually are being transformed, that God is at work in the gospel message, changing hearts, changing and transforming people. It's the pro proclamation that changes the world in its proclaiming. That lies at the heart of evangelism. We must not lose confidence in the word of God. We must not diminish the power of the word of God. We must expect that as the word of God spoke, speaks, so changes will happen because it is the very creative word of God that is in our mouths as we preach the gospel and brings transformation to people. To this end, proclamation requires us to live consistently with the message that we preach. The message, though, is the message, whether we live consistently with it or whether we don't. Come with me for, to uh, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. It's only over a few pages, isn't it? Paul's in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to be released or not. And while in prison, people are preaching the gospel. Verse 15, Philippians 1.15. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do it so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. The motives of the preacher do not affect the truth of the gospel. I mean, they're not talking about a false gospel they're preaching here. They're talking about a true gospel 
for false motives. You can preach the gospel for very false motives. It's one of the great dangers and problems, especially those who come in prominence with megachurches or with tele-evangelism and the like. The motivation gets very confused, especially when you pay ministers too much money. The motivation gets very confused, you see. You can preach for good motives, you can preach for false motives. But the gospel is the gospel, irrespective of the motives for which the person has preached it. Of course you should do it for good motives. But just because it's bad motives doesn't change the gospel. And what Paul rejoices in is the gospel is preached, whatever the motives of the people, that the Lord Jesus Christ is proclaimed. That's the great news as far as he's concerned. He's a big-hearted man, isn't he? But he's really committed to the gospel going out. False gospels, well, he has very little time for. Come back to Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1, verses 6 to 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already say, said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one which you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? Um, nice. Nice. The Bible translators are lovely people, you know. <laughs> let him be damned is the kind of word, actually. Uh, it, it, it really is strong in the language that is being used here. But notice the nature of the gospel that he has there. There's only one gospel. So if you preach an alternative version of the gospel, it's no gospel because it, there's only one gospel. Notice it's pervertible. Not everything that's said is going to be the gospel. You can distort the gospel. You can pervert the gospel by not teaching the truth of the gospel. That, thirdly, it's true independently of who preaches it. So an angel turns up to preach the gospel. Well, that doesn't make it right because it's an angel. That, it doesn't matter who's preaching it. Out of the mouths of babes and infants comes the truth, that come the praises of God. Balaam's ass knew more of the truth than Balaam did. Now, you don't go around listening to donkeys. Well, some of you might. I don't know. But, well, you're here today. You don't go around listening to donkeys, you see. So it's not, the, it's not the preacher who makes the gospel true. The gospel's true because it's true. Whoever's mouth it might come from, it's true. Even if I say, Paul, I come back to you with a different gospel, then let me be damned. So the gospel is pervertible, distortable, there's only one, it's deniable, and it is independent of who preaches it. That is the nature of the gospel. There's a wonderful Spurgeon story I remember a few years ago reading, and I'll do, do disservice to it, because it, but it's too good a story to miss it. Spurgeon says, suppose I go down the aisle tonight, and in the aisle I meet a man who's an angel, and the angel says to me, Mr Spurgeon, uh, I've got a word from God for you. What would I say? He said, I'd say, please don't tell me. I don't want to know. And uh, 
But if the angel persists and said, but Mr. Spurgeon, I have a message specifically for you. And he said, well, I don't, I've got to tell you, Mr. Spurgeon. Well, if you have to tell me, you tell me. But I'd rather you didn't. And so the angel then says to him, Mr. Spurgeon, I've seen your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. What would I say? Mr. Spurgeon said, I would say to you, be damned, get lost, you foul fiend. I don't want to have anything to do with you. See, previously I had my faith in the blood of the Lamb and in the Word of God and you are tempting me to put my faith in the Word of an angel. Isn't that a clever illustration? It's a powerful, because we'd all like a little word from an angel, wouldn't we? You know, going down there, wings, halo, long robes, you're in, you know. It's a message you'd like, wouldn't it? No. (laughs) The truth is the truth independent of the preacher. The fact that it's an angel saying it to you, no more authoritative than God says it to you. How can it be more authoritative than God has said it to you? Very important, you see, about the nature of the gospel, that we understand it. But the gospel is at work in us, transforming us to be more like Jesus, the very object of our gospel. And so the way we preach, and indeed the way we live, should be consistent with the message we're preaching. And so in 2 Corinthians, back we go now to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we don't lose heart or use underhanded ways. See, once you understand that we have the ministry greater than the ministry of Moses, isn't that normal? I mean, Moses is one of my childhood heroes. I was a child of Sunday school upbringing, and Moses was one of the great giants, and God gives us a ministry greater than Moses. Because Moses brought the law that condemned, and we bring the gospel that saves. We bring the gospel that changes the hearts and minds of people, transforms them into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's our message, we don't lose heart. We we actually have the power of God in our lives, in our hearts, in our mouths. And we don't use underhanded methods. We don't have to use them and they don't work anyway. And anyway, they're completely inconsistent with the God of truth. How can you preach the gospel of truth using lies? It's completely inconsistent. But let's return to the content of that gospel. For where we finished last night was down in verses 4 and 5 where the content of what we proclaim is spelt out. For verse 5, what we proclaim is what we preach. Sorry, for we do not preach ourselves, but preach Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now let's take it phrase by phrase for a moment here. It's not ourselves. That's not the content of the gospel. That's not what the gospel is about. That's not the truth of the gospel. We're we're not the subject of the gospel. We're not the important parts of the gospel. It's not my ministry. It's not my church. It's not my gospel. It's not about me. You have to get rid of self to be an evangelist. You have to deny yourself, said Jesus. Take up your cross, follow me, to, the, to, to crucifixion. You've got to say no 
to self to be an evangelist. It's very important, friends, because the work of teaching the gospel to others and sharing it with others is a fearful work. But fear comes from your concern for yourself. It's a work where we're self-conscious about our abilities and our inabilities, but self-consciousness comes from self-centeredness. It's a work where we, are, we feel inadequate, but our inadequacy is an irrelevance because the power of the word is God's, not ours. All my self-consciousness, which makes me inhibited to ever share the gospel with other people, is the failure to embrace the gospel itself because the gospel is not about us. First step in following the Lord Jesus, say no to self. Deny yourself. Uh, The word deny just means say no. You can say no to lots of things, can't you? You can say, uh, no, I didn't do what you're telling me. The same I did. You deny the accusation against you. Or you can say, no, I'm not going to eat that ice cream. Don't know why you would. I can't imagine that bit, actually. But... That's what it means. But what you're being saying no to is not accusations, it's not ice creams. I'm saying no to self. I'm denying myself. Jesus again goes on to say, this is the end of Mark 8 in case you don't recognise it, that Jesus then goes on to say, for whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. So being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ In Australian vocabulary, what Jesus was saying, if you want to be my disciple, drop dead. That's what he's saying. As long as you have yourself, you can't be mine. But if you're going to be mine, drop dead. No longer self, deny self, take up cross, die. So the gospel can't be about ourselves. It's not about ourselves. What's it about? Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus, that particular man of history, the Jewish man whose name means saviour, born of the family of David in the town of Bethlehem, the man who went around preaching the gospel and the coming of the kingdom. He was doing good, he was kind and, and, and helpful to all people, doing the kind of good that the Old Testament prophets prophesied would be coming with the Messiah. And he was teaching his disciples of his imminent arrest and trial and execution as well as his resurrection. And so he was betrayed by wicked men and crucified by the Romans at the behest of the Jews. That Jesus of history is whom we proclaim. Not just any Jesus, not every Jesus, but that Jesus is the Jesus we proclaim. And he is the Christ. Christ is not his surname, but his title can't go to Bethlehem and look him up under J. Christ, 3rd Street, 4th Avenue. He was the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah who comes to bring the kingdom of God. Just the one Jesus was talking about, who when accused of being the Christ, started to tell his disciples about his execution, but accepted the title, accepted the accusation in his trial. Are you the Christ? I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming. He is the Christ. And further, the Lord, the ruler, the owner, the master, the king. 
The Old Testament word had the overtone of Yahweh because the Jew didn't use the name of God but, in, but inserted the Lord in all the time. But here the primary meaning is that of the king, the master, the slave owner. Now we've evacuated the force of the word Lord mainly because we don't have them anymore. At this point, I don't know how I'm translating to your situation and context and cultures, but Australians are profoundly, fiercely egalitarian. Anybody in Australia who rises above the rest, we call a tall poppy. And what we do with tall poppies is we chop them down as quickly as we can. It's very important in Australia that you are no better than anybody else around about you. It is the fundamental cultural experience, which is why we're always being rude to each other, so as to keep each other in our place. Never think you're better than anybody. I'm sorry, that's just the way we are. I'm sorry. It's just, it's life. It's called having a chip on your shoulder. Well, if you were a convict colony, you would too. That, uh, <laughs> And so the word Lord, no event. It's completely evacuated of any meaning in the Australian context. Because we have a British heritage, we have the House of Lords, which we love because they are so powerless and irrelevant to our life. <laughs> and because in the late 19th century, Gilbert and Sullivan made such fun of them with their, 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 their play, Iolanthe. And so we don't have anything, we've never had slavery in Australia. You don't need slaves if you've got convicts. And so we've never had slavery in Australia. And we don't like bossy bosses and we never really are interested in political masters. One of the characteristics of Australian politics is we never vote anybody into power, we always vote people out of power. <laughs> and so you never win an election in Australia, you just don't lose it. That's, uh, if you don't lose, that's considered to be a win. <laughs> We've also been Christianised in our culture into seeing God being answerable to his covenant and lordship as being service. And so we Christians in Australia just don't get the word Lord very much. But Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has risen to the right hand of God, having conquered the evil one and his accusations against his people, having paid for their sins, having paid for our sins, having turned aside God's righteous anger against their sinfulness and risen in victory over all. He is the ruler of all. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings and ruler of rulers. He is the Lord. But the message is that Jesus is the Christ and Lord of all. I'd like to compare then that message that we looked at briefly yesterday in Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David, that's the Christ line, according to the flesh, and was declared to be son of God in power by his resurrection, according to the spirit of holiness. Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's the gospel. It's about Jesus Christ as Lord. So the, the gospel proclamation is summarised by those words, the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now some people want to preach Jesus, the saviour. 
But if he's not the Lord, he cannot save, for he saves by conquering sin. Some people want to preach Jesus as Lord without saving. But if he doesn't save you from the sins, then the Lord will condemn you by your failure to keep his commandments. He is Saviour and Lord, is our Lord Jesus Christ. But when he, when he returns to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, when we go back there, look what it says. We preach Jesus as Lord, not ourselves, with ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. Now you'll notice that I didn't use the word servants, which is in your text, but I use the word slaves, which is in the Greek. For there are slaves and there are servants. And those two things are not the same. And the word that's used here is slave. There are two different words in Greek, doulos and diakonos. They're quite different words. There's different as slave and servant. And our translations, nearly all, have servant rather than slave because we don't believe in slavery. We're opposed to slavery. The evangelical Bible believers, we led the campaign against slavery. Therefore, we're anti-slavery. We're so anti-slavery, we won't believe what the Bible says about slavery, <laughs> which is a problem, isn't it, for us? And so we miss out on what is being said. Now, all slaves serve, but not all servants are slaves. So what's the difference between a slave and a servant? Well, the difference is freedom. That's the difference. The servant is free to change their master and serve somewhere else. The slave is not free to change their master. And so that fundamental difference is there. However, slavery is alive and well in our world today in the dreadful sense of slave trading, which is happening in our world, and it's sheerly dreadful, and slave trading is always condemned in the Bible, but slavery is not always condemned in the Bible. And that's because some slavery is right and proper. Some slavery is unwise and foolish. Some slavery is evil and wrong. And they're differentiated. The slavery that's evil and wrong is slave trading, kidnapping people. That is clearly wrong and condemned in the scriptures explicitly in such as 1 Timothy chapter 1. The slavery that is right is when you lock criminals up in jail. You deny them their freedom for they have denied their freedom by their actions and the courts have ruled that their actions are wrong and so you deprive them of their freedom. That is a right thing that everybody approves of these days, basically, except criminals. And, <laughs> but we don't call it slavery, but the Bible would have called it slavery. That is what you put people in slavery. Prisoners of war are also slaves. And so the, the, the terrorist who will not lay down his arms, what are you going to do? You can't let him continue in freedom. So you enslave him. You deny him his freedom. There is another form of slavery. The most common form of slavery in the world, of course, is debtor's slavery. And we used to have debtor's prisons 
uh, in our Western world, we've got rid of debtors' prisons now. We have bankruptcy laws. But what are bankruptcy laws about? They're about depriving people freedom because they have defaulted on their loans. And so you say, well, you can't now trade like you did so for X number of years while you pay off whatever you can pay off. We will pardon you after seven years, but you lose certain political rights, certain trading rights, because you are a debtor. And that is a form of slavery, a much more benign and pleasant one than than debtor's prison, which, of course, Charles Dickens wrote about a lot. But the common form of slavery, and it's seen in the ESV footnotes very often, is bonded service where, and it's usually poor people who put themselves into this bonded service, where they say, I will work for you for five years or ten years under these circumstances, but I'm not free now to work for anybody else and I will do what I'm told to do for these five, ten years uh, for bonded service reasons. That the Bible would have called slavery. You see, my wife was a slave and I was her redeemer. I point this out to her fairly frequently, actually. (laughs) I like to just remind her from time to time that I was her redeemer. Uh, When we went through university, and we met at university, she went through on a teacher's college scholarship from the New South Wales government. And the deal was they paid all her university fees, and then for five years after that, they could send her to anywhere in the state of New South Wales, which is a huge area of the state of New South Wales and there's lots of it where you wouldn't want to be. And they could send you anywhere there at 24 hours notice where you would have to teach any subject they wanted you to, whether you were trained in it or not. And so on the Friday, she was told, report at Parks, 250 miles west of Sydney, and start teaching next Monday. And so for five years... She was at the disposal and her labour and her work and where she lived and what she did was at the disposal of the government because she had bonded herself to do that. To break the bond, she would have to pay quite a large sum of money. However, the rules were sexist in those days. Um, The feminists uh, never understood this and if you're a feminist amongst us, Uh, please read a history book sometime uh, and stop making up what you think happened in the past. It really is nonsense. You see, back in those days, it was sexist in the sense that if you're a man, that was the bond, that was it. But if you're a woman, they could never send you somewhere other than where your husband lived. So if you got married then you no longer could be just sent anywhere in New South Wales. You could only be sent where your husband was. And if you got pregnant, it was cancelled immediately. Now, (laughs) the men, they had to go wherever they were sent. And if they got married, they still had to go wherever they were sent. And if they got pregnant, there was no cancellation. (laughs) Now, that's sexist, isn't it? Quite unfair. But by me getting engaged and marrying my wife, I was able to free her from her bond of slavery (laughs) that she was in. 
and she became a free agent to teach wherever she wanted to rather than where the department sent her to. And she couldn't be separated from me and she hasn't been until I came to Dubai. And you, Anyway. <laughs> We've been many, many times separated by this work of the gospel and uh, she prays for us and uh, uh, rejoices. Now, do you see what slavery is? It's that bond that you have, that obligation that you have, that lack of freedom that you have. It's not being in chains whipped to to row the boats for Roman Empire and it's not the African slave trade which took people across and killed them, which was one of the most appalling periods of history and one of the most wicked evil things that ever happened and praise God that the evangelicals stood firm against it because it was undoubtedly evil and wicked in every sense of the word. But Every reference to slavery in the Bible is not to that kind of slave trading. That's the bit the Bible's really against. The slaves of the Old Testament, you weren't allowed to be enslaved for more than seven years. See, if you got yourself in debt, you had a seven-year bond period to pay off your debt. It It was a social functioning purposes, very similar to what we are still using in this world today. But... That's the image that the gospel uses. Not only the gospel, Jesus uses. Not only Jesus, but the apostle Paul is using. Because that's the word that's here. We are your slaves for Jesus' sake. Now, remember the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Philippians chapter 2, that wonderful passage, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. Actually, the word servant in most translations, but the word slave, Jesus enslaved himself for us. Are we not going to enslave ourselves for others? When Jesus enslaved himself for us, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man himself came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Remember Jesus on the night he was betrayed? What did he do? He took the towel and bent down and washed the feet of his disciples. As best I understand, Uh, This may not be historically accurate, but I read it in the Jeremias histories of Israel at the time of the first century. Uh, Washing of the feet was the activity of the slave, but in Jewish communities, the Jewish slave didn't have to do it. It was beneath the dignity of a Jewish slave to wash the feet. But that's what Jesus did. He did the work of the slave even below the level of the Jewish slave. That is what he did for the disciples. And what he did for them, he set as the model for them to do for each other. And whose slave are to we be? We're to be yours. That's what Paul says. Paul was the slave of the Corinthian Christians. He was now living for their salvation. He was now laying down his life for their salvation. He was following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but the advantage of many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Christ laid down his life for the salvation of other people. 
Paul laid down his life for the salvation of other people. He tells us to follow the same example, lay down our lives for the salvation of other people. Has Jesus enslaved himself for us? So Paul enslaved himself for the Corinthians, setting a model for us to enslave ourselves for others. So you see it here in chapter 4, verse 12. Death is at work in us, but life in you. I am giving my life for your salvation. But notice the reason why he was to be their slaves. It was for Jesus' sake. Because Jesus is the real Lord, not the Corinthians. They weren't his Lord. The Lord was their Lord. Jesus was his Lord. But Jesus wants us to serve other people. That's why we're their slaves. That's why we lay down our lives for them. It's to please and satisfy our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our salvation and died for them, that we lay down our lives for them. So it's in obedience to him for whom we live that we give our lives to others. It's following our master for whom we live and die that we give our lives to others. And that helps us understand why we don't lose heart. And we always are of good courage. They're the ESV words. I can't remember the NIV words that are used here. But they'll mean much the same thing. So chapter 5, verse 6, we're always confident. Uh, chapter 5, verse six, 8, yes, we, we are confident. So we don't lose heart and we're confident. You don't feel confident about gospel work, do you? That's because you've still got yourself in the screen. When you're a slave for the other person, you can feel confident because the activity is not about you, it's about them. And it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not in the scene. You're but a slave. They're slave for Jesus' sake. Paul had a dreadful life, chapter 4, verses 8 to 12, you see. What a dreadful life he had. It's not the kind of life you want for your children unless you're very Christian. And yet it was the power of the gospel that was at work. You see, we've been hard-pressed on every side, not crushed, perplexed, not persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, always carrying around the body of death. This is the character of the Christian minister and the missionary and the apostle and the every Christian. But you see, we have this treasure in, how does he call it, jars of clay, chapter 4-7, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. The great evangelists are unknown to us today. Because the ones who are really well known to us, they're not clay pots. They are really fancy vases. And everybody looks at them and talks about them and tells you about them. But really the great evangelists, they talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, not about them. Uh, you, you are very nice and I don't, I'm not being rude to anybody here. This is not a rude thing. This is not even Australian. You're really very nice and you've been very nice to me and gracious and kind. But you know when you stand at the door of a church and people uh, thank you for preaching, when they say, oh, you're a wonderful preacher, you know you're not. When they say, isn't Jesus fantastic? You actually haven't done a bad job. Right? So the more they praise the preacher, the more it's not true. 
but the more the preacher believes it. Because the trouble in living sacrifices, we keep climbing off the altar. Right? And we keep resurrecting ourselves instead of waiting for the Lord to do the job. It, no, no, we're clay pots. The clay pot has no value in and of itself. What is the value of the clay pot is what's contained inside the clay pot. That is the word of God. That is the power. In fact, our very weakness, frailty, our very inadequacy, our lack of words, our stumbling ways, etc., are all part of the demonstration that the conversion is of God, not of us. They haven't been won by us. They've been won by the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't worry that you stumble over your words. Don't worry that you haven't got the answer to every question that you're being asked. Don't worry about the fact that you're not a very impressive person. Praise God, that sounds like an ideal description of an evangelist. Because it's the power of the truth of the gospel that is going to change hearts and minds. Not the greatness of the preacher, the eloquence of his message, the, the capacity to entertain crowds for hours. And they're, they're not the signs of a great preacher. They're the signs of someone who's getting in the way of the gospel. So we don't lose heart. What we do is teach the gospel. So look at chapter 4, verse 13. It's written, I believed, and therefore I've spoken. With the same spirit of faith, because he's quoting a psalm there, with the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is teaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. This is what it is that we're taking place. He knew the psalm, it's Psalm 116, that believing in the Saviour who, who rescues from death meant speaking of what we know. And so Paul's own life and experience exemplify the gospel. Constantly given to death, constantly being rescued as if by resurrection. Chapter 4, verse 10, always carrying the body of death in the body so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. The gospel's call to disciples is to deny ourselves, take up the cross and follow him and to lose our lives for his sake and the gospel's. So as we put ourselves out for others, as we choose to turn away from our own life in order to save others, we are actually walking examples of what the gospel is about. What would Jesus do? He's a very silly piety. I tell you one thing he wouldn't do. He wouldn't have a little bracelet with WWJD. <laughs> Sorry if you've got one, just pull your sleeve down. <laughs> just... <laughs> what would Jesus do is a, is a way of being able to think up what would I do with a pious thought? Because we don't know what would Jesus would do in most of the situations in life that we're in and we're not called upon to think out what would Jesus do in this situation. I know it comes from good and godly background, but no. What did Jesus do? That's what we must do. 
What did Jesus do? Because I don't know whether Jesus would buy a Volkswagen or a Mercedes or ride a bicycle. I've got no idea. Nor do you. And there's no point making it up. But I know what Jesus did do. This is a true saying, worthy of all men to be received. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what Jesus did. And that's what I must do. How can I follow the Lord Jesus Christ and not be concerned for the lost? For whatever else Jesus was, he was concerned for the lost. Whatever else Jesus did, he laid down his life for the lost. If I'm going to be like Jesus, how can I ignore the lost? How can I refuse to go into the world in order to save the lost? How can I refuse to lay down my life for the lost? It's a no-brainer, really, friends. I don't need to ask, what would Jesus do? I know what Jesus did. And that's what I must do. I want to be like Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I want to imitate Jesus, all of which the 18 taught in the Scriptures. Then I must be concerned for the lost, and I cannot remain in the comfort of this world's pleasures. So notice that what Paul says here. What he did was propagate the gospel. For as people come to believe, more and more people come to praise God. And so it ever increases, verse 15, to the praise of God. It's all for your sake, so the gospel may go to more and more people, so that more and more people will increase their thanksgiving to God. Do you get offended when people use Jesus' name as a swear word? when people make fun of our Lord, when people rubbish God and believe in him, then you should want more people converted who will speak well of God and praise our God. We're offended and we do nothing. We're offended and so in our country, Christians try and ask the government to defend us. We mustn't defend Christianity by legal means and by government actions and the like. It's a folly of Western Christians to think that they can get their governments to impose Christianity. We must never do that. If you get offended, then preach the gospel more so that more people will be converted and do less offensive things. So that Jesus will be praised rather than blasphemed. Fifthly, we're to live the gospel. Though he was dying daily, yet he knew the resurrection power of God. He lived daily by God's power as he looked forward to the eternal. Last paragraph of chapter 4, therefore we don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on not what is seen but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. Here's the mindset that's so different to our contemporaries. Here's the mindset of the true Christian. We're not overwhelmed by the present because we're not living for the present. We're not given to earthly aspirations. We're not looking for the unseen eternal. We're looking for the unseen. We're looking for the eternal treasures, not the ones of this world. We're longing for our true home. We're aiming to please. Why are you in Dubai? Why are you here? All due respects to those who don't actually come from here, this is a ridiculous place to be. 
And nearly everybody here comes from somewhere else, don't they? And so why have you come here? I can understand why you've come to Sydney. (laughs) It's beautiful, it's pleasant, it's easy. You don't have to have the air conditioner on all the time. You know, we have seasons, we, we have beaches, we can actually go out and play in the sun because it's not going to burn us. I can understand why you're in Sydney. Why are you in Dubai? Make money, isn't it? For some of us, there's all kinds of reasons. We've got nowhere else. We've been persecuted. We've got to, but it's got to do. He's a great place to make a lot of money over a short period of time, low taxation. Here's a place to be materialists of a world stage. Here's a place to improve my lot in this world and in this lifetime. The reason for you to be here is because this is a great evangelistic opportunity to reach the world. Dubai is a marvellous city like Corinth of old, like Ephesus of old. It's a port city where people are pouring through and where you have an opportunity to affect the course of human history by preaching the gospel. You're here because you're right in the centre of the Islamic world and are free to gather in a church together, which you can't always do, and share the gospel with a people group who are not reached with the gospel. You're here for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ because as a Christian, you're not living for this world. You're living for the age to come. You don't live by sight but by faith, don't you? Or are you only Christians in name? For if you're Christians in reality, you don't live for this world. You live for the age to come. And the way you live in this world is for the age to come. And so growing rich in this world is a distraction from your reality, the age to come. Look what he's saying here. Chapter 4, verse 16. I read it, but I'll read it again. Therefore we don't lose heart, 4.16. Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Why? Well, look down to chapter 5, verse 10. I'm not going to give you verses 1 to 10 about the tent and the rest, but verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due to him for, uh, for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is not a judgment of salvation and condemnation. That's been secured already by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the judgment for rewards of our lives lived in Christ Jesus. More of that in the talk after our morning session break in a few moments' time. But this is about facing Christ and answering for what you have done since you became one of his slaves. 1959, I was converted at a Billy Graham crusade in Sydney. When I appeared before the Lord Jesus Christ, he can reasonably say, well, Philip, what have you done since 1959? What happened before 1959, that's all covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We needn't worry about that. What have you done since 1959 with the life that I have given you to live in my service? That is when the slave of Christ, Philip Jensen, is going to have to answer for his service of the Lord Jesus Christ. My salvation is secure, 
But then it will be seen the wood, hay, stubble that my life has been. Well, then it will be seen the precious gold, silver stones that my life has been. What have I done with the life that he has given me? That's when it happens. That's what we're going to after morning tea, but just come back now to conclude what is evangelism. It's a message we proclaim. It's the message of declaring Jesus Christ as Lord. For he is the king, the saviour, the judge. And with that message comes kingdom and righteousness, mercy and forgiveness, rebirth and eternal life. It just all gets packed in under that heading, Jesus Christ as Lord. But it's the message to live by and it's the message to die by. And therefore, if we believe it, we must live it. And so his aim, he says in chapter 5, verse 9, our goal is to please him. Whether we're at home in the body here or in heaven, makes no difference. We've got the same goal now, to please the Lord. That is the goal and aim of everything we do. Let me conclude by reading to you Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4. I always like to see we've understood a part of the Bible by seeing another part that says the same thing. Since, therefore, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on earthly things. For you died. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. If you've died with Christ, drop dead. If you've raised with Christ, live for him. Set your mind on the things that are above. Set your hearts on the things that are above and not on the things of this earth. Evangelism is proclaiming the gospel. But if you're going to proclaim the gospel, hopefully you'll believe it. And because the gospel is about the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's about your death and your resurrection. And that's what you've got to believe. That's what you've got to live if you're going to preach the death and resurrection of Jesus. Otherwise, there's a profound hypocrisy, isn't there? I'm saying one thing, but not living it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. And we pray, heavenly Father, that we may truly deny ourselves, take up the cross, follow him. That we may truly live for him and the gospel. That we might know him as our Lord, our saviour and our Lord, the one who owns us, who has bought us at the price of his own blood and who now, Heavenly Father, who now is our Lord and Master, that we might live for him by enslaving ourselves for others as he enslaved himself for us, that we might live for him by serving others with the great gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us, Father, to serve your Son as he has purchased us to serve him. And we ask it in Jesus' name.